Hi, this is Christian Schwartz, co-founder of Commercial Type. We've just opened our vault where you can find works in progress, upcoming releases, and even custom typefaces originally drawn for magazines including Bloomberg Businessweek, Bon Appetit, and Tea. Visit vault.commercialtype.com. My first job at Playboy, Art Paul called me and he said, we can't find people to do the kind of ideas that I want to see in the magazine. And he said, do you think you can come up with a better idea than my staff? And I thought, I just flashed flash of a second. I didn't know what the hell to say. Finally, I just said, well, I don't know if I can do anything better, but I know I could do something more personal. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. And Art said, that's a great answer, Brad. Go ahead and do something more personal. And so I did. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Stephen Heller. I'm Patrick Mitchell. It's 1967, and your train from Sandusky, Ohio, just rolled into Grand Central. You've got a suitcase in one hand and your portfolio in the other. You exit the station and take a right uptown before realizing it's the wrong way. It's okay, you're not from around here. So you turn around and head down to 223 East 31st Street, the studio of the celebrated designer Herb Luballin, who was about to give you your first assignment in the big city. And so begins the career of legendary illustrator Brad Holland, a 50-plus year career that put him on the Mount Rushmore of contemporary American illustration alongside Milton Glaser, Edward Sorrell, Ralph Steadman, Seymour Quast, and the recently departed Marshall Harrisman. When you begin your career in the summer of love, at some point the conversation is going to turn to sex. After turning in his first piece to Lou Ballin's Avant-Garde, a magazine with mild sexual themes, Holland's next few assignments came from magazines who liked it a little rougher, Screw Magazine and the New York Review of Sex, before finally landing a steady gig at Hugh Hefner's Playboy. As Playboy's legendary art director, Art Paul, would soon find out, Holland wasn't like other illustrators. Inspired by Gary Cooper's Howard Rourke in the movie The Fountainhead, who battled against conventional standards and refused to compromise with the establishment, Holland was not willing to execute the spoon-fed instructions given by magazine art directors. He revolutionized the Illustrator for Hire dynamic. It changed everything. In this episode, Holland talks with our editor-at-large and esteemed design critic Stephen Heller, an Art Directors Club Hall of Famer and AIGA medalist, who also calls Holland one of his oldest friends and mentors. They talk about their early days together, what it's like to tell your mother that you finally sold a cover illustration to Screw Magazine, how to say no to a creative director, how to crop an Ayatollah, and Spoiler alert, how to avoid getting mugged in Alphabet City. Brad Holland was a young man from the middle of the country, Fremont, Ohio, which maybe not unironically for today's conversation, sits between the towns of Stony Prairie and Ballville. Brad's career took him fairly quickly from illustrating greeting cards for Hallmark to illustrating covers for Screw Magazine, where you were the art director no less. You have an amazing story about your early career that we will get to in a minute, but first, 
Tell our millennial listeners a little about what's known as the sex press that existed in the late 60s and early 70s. The period is just a little bit before my time. Uh, as a former red-blooded American teenage boy, of course, I knew about Playboy as well as some of the other less savory publications that were referred to then as porno magazines. But these weren't that, were they? Well, these were porno magazines in the context of how uh, Supreme Court defined pornography, which was community standards. So if a magazine had something in it that was distasteful to the majority of the community, it was deemed pornographic. And the thinking behind doing these sex papers was to increase circulation of the underground paper that kind of sponsored it. And that was done through pornography. It had its limits. It was tongue and other things in cheek. How did the pornography manifest itself in these underground publications? Well, pornography is something that goes against societal norms. So there was nudity, there was sexuality, there was uh, vivid acts of sexuality. Are you talking all in photographs or also written? In photographs and written. Uh, some of it was gross. Some of it was kind of... Uh, unique and distinct. We had, for example, a big feature on the trans person who was the center of Dog Day Afternoon. Right. The woman that the Al Pacino character was trying to get money for the operation. She used to come up to screw a lot and she was photographed at stages during her transition. How do you think these magazines would be perceived today? as soft core compared to HBO. That's a good comparison. Well, here's a little contrast for you. When I turned 17, I was scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins. You, on the other hand, graduated high school early and quickly entered the workforce as, quoting you now, a 17-year-old pornographer. Can you share that story? Well, the story is going to be in my memoir that comes out this fall from Princeton Architectural Press. Um, I was arrested twice during a major roundup of the four sex papers that emerged from four underground papers. One was the East Village Other, and they produced something called Kiss, and it had center spreads by Robert Crumb, by R. Crumb. The other was called Pleasure, and it was uh, published by the, the men who ran Rat. Rat was an underground paper that subsequently was considered so misogynistic it was taken over by the militant women and uh, they have issues that they did to prove it and they basically kicked the male staff out and uh, there were other publications screw which was the overall umbrella company is called milky way productions but the fourth publication was the New York Review of Sex and Politics. And and that's the one that I published with two colleagues and worked on with Brad Holland. Uh, Basically learned how to be an art director by working with Brad Holland. And you were 17? When I was busted, I was 17. And they wouldn't put me in the holding pens with the adults. So I had to go into holding pens with prostitutes. And what was the the scenario when you were arrested? The scenario was 
simple. They call on the telephone. They say, this is uh, Detective so-and-so from the district attorney's office. We have a warrant for your arrest. Do not leave. We'll be there in a half hour. Did you even spend a second thinking about going on the run, on the lam? Not a second. You know, when you're 17, you're not all that sophisticated. Right. And when you're 17, an American in New York City, you don't feel the danger of the police or the law, you know? Who's this hurting? Yeah. It's taboo, but it ain't hurting anybody. So I blithely went along. I, I asked them when we were leaving during one of the arrests. I had gotten to know the cops by then if they were gonna handcuff me. And the younger cop, who was an interesting character, uh, he said, well, if you want us to, we will. But otherwise, I don't think you're going anywhere. And so, did this go to court? Yes. Our particular case with the New York Review of Sex and Screw were co-defendants in New York State Supreme Court. And it was a hearing about prior restraint, whether the state and city had the right to confiscate our material prior to any determination of its content or not. And in fact, they busted the issue of the New York Review of Sex that was called our especially clean issue and was basically about bathing, a kind of prefigured wet magazine, gourmet bathers. But there was also a big trial in Wichita, Kansas, and that was against Screw. Screw was um, indicted for passing pornography through the mails, and Wichita, Kansas was the hub of the postal system. So during that trial, the two publishers of Screw were the defendants, and I was subpoenaed as an expert witness for the prosecution. But I had been preparing for years to be subpoenaed as an expert witness and used illustration on the covers of Screw to basically counteract their accusation that there's no socially redeeming value. So I would use Brad Holland and say, uh, on this witness stand, this is a cover done by the artist Brad Holland, whose work has appeared in the New York Times and Time Magazine, has won awards from the Society of Illustrators and the Art Directors Club. And I would do that with a lot of different illustrators. Yeah, you worked with quite a few A-list illustrators. Quite a few. I mean, they were A-list illustrators after I worked with them in Screw. Brad will have a better and different memory of it than I, but we both can agree that there was a lot of activity in art and design going on at that time. It wasn't, you know, art director club friendly in the sense that it didn't follow any of the formal constraints or tenets of the time, but we got a piece into the AIGA best covers show Doug Taylor, who was a great illustrator, part of the retro crowd, Kenny Nitel, Doug Taylor, others. He got an AIGA award for his screw cover. And uh, Brad, of course, could do anything he wanted. How did your time at Screw and the New York Review of Sex and Politics and Aerospace end? Well, New York Review of Sex and Politics 
and aerospace ended after we couldn't sell issues. We did 20 issues. The first couple were bought out. Then we stopped putting a lot of sex in the paper. It was more heady. More aerospace. Well, the aerospace was tacked on at the very last issue. I was accused of being the only publisher in New York City that could make a sex paper fail by our distributor. So he said, you either put some nudity on the cover, because we had been doing covers by Brad Holland right. that were quite beautiful. We did one that had a photograph, and we redid the logo to spell out sex. And the same point size said politics, and there was a big ampersand. And it barely made it to the newsstand. I think the distributor threw most of the copies out, and that was the end of uh, New York Review of Sex. We'll hear you and Brad talk a little bit more about those days in the interview. So thanks for sharing, and let's meet Brad. What I did want to start by saying is that Brad is the oldest friend I have on the planet that I know of. And Brad came into my life at just the right point, became my teacher, my mentor, role model. And we haven't really talked an awful lot in the last 20 or 30 years. So this is a great opportunity to talk about what we've been through in that amount of time, and particularly how his work not only affected me, but affected the magazine business in general, of which I've been a part. So the first question I have is more of a conversation piece. I remember when you got off the bus from Fremont, Ohio, it was one of those places. Oh, beyond the Hudson. Beyond the Hudson. And we met when you came and answered an ad for a magazine that I was doing and didn't know squat about magazine design, but you had already plunked yourself down in New York City and your first illustrations were in avant-garde with Herb Lubalin as art director. And just to start off, I'd like you to recall what that period was like for you. Well, the first thing is it was the so-called summer of love. You remember? Everybody was supposed to be going to San Francisco with flowers in their hair. I apparently caught the wrong bus because I came east, and I had no flowers whatsoever in my hair. And I did come. I'd come a long way from, uh, I had left my job in Kansas City. I'd been working at Hallmark. Well, thank you for the kind words, first of all. I didn't mean to be impolite. I didn't want to cut you off at the time. Anyway, I had been working in Kansas City for two years. I had left Ohio when I was 17, after right, right when I graduated from high school. And I left for Chicago. I'd never been to a big city before, so I didn't exactly know what I was going to do when I got there. But I figured I'd find out once I got off the bus in Chicago. So I worked there for 18 months. And then I got a job at Hallmark, where I became a supervisor and did a lot of book illustrations, which gave me a, a good portfolio. And I just quit my job and came to New York with absolutely no idea of where I was even going to stay the first night. I didn't know anybody. I stopped off in Ohio. My grandfather just had his leg amputated. And so I spent a month there driving him up to Toledo so we could learn how to walk with his artificial leg. Then I caught the bus through New York. But did you have a sense of you knew what the good magazines were and 
Oh, no. I No, I mean, the best thing you could do about magazines was just go to the newsstand and look at them and see which ones looked like they might use me. The thing that made a difference in my case was Herb LeBollin was art directing a funny magazine called Fact in those days. And Fact was one of Ralph Ginsburg's fairly eccentric publications. He had published Arrows back when I was working in Chicago. And I don't remember how many issues it had. It was a quarterly, and it has a hardcover kind of based on Horizon magazine. And he had some good people, except that he decided to be clever. And since it was a magazine designed around erotic art, he, he decided to mail it from Blue Balls, Pennsylvania, and Intercourse, Pennsylvania. And he sent the subscriptions out from those two cities. And the government got him for pandering. It was the charge. Pandering is the charge. He had used the U.S. mails to pander. So that closed down that magazine. So he ran a second one was Fact. Fact was kind of a combination of Consumer Reports and the National Enquirer. It was full of articles about how Colt was going to give you cancer and so on. But the one thing about it was LeBallin was such an, an adventurous art director that he would design every issue using one artist to do black and white artwork for all the articles. And I had seen, I had started following this because my friend Jim Parkinson had told me about it at Hallmark. Parkinson was a great lettering artist, and LeBallin, of course, used typography beautifully. So Jim was the one who told me about fact, and I began following it. LeBallin used type beautifully in, in fact, but he also got artists to do single issues. They would do everything. And a lot of artists would just paint pictures, and then they'd be run in black and white. But there was one issue just before I came to New York that was done by Etienne Delessert that used his ink drawings very beautifully. And so I had it in my mind when I got to New York, I was going to see Herb LeBallin, and I didn't waste any time. I got off the bus, I mean, I got off the train rather, took a bus to Sandusky, and then caught a train from Sandusky to New York. Anyway, I got off the train, put my suitcase, I had a suitcase and a portfolio, put my suitcase in the locker. They still had lockers in Grand Central Station in those days. And I went to a telephone booth and called LeBallin's office. They wouldn't look at my portfolio, but they said I could drop it off. So I dropped it off. I went out on the street. I didn't know New York at all. Didn't know anybody. I found myself on 42nd Street and I started walking one block. And so I was on 43rd Street. So I knew I was walking in the wrong direction. I was headed for, I think it was 31st. So I just went in the other direction, walked on down until I found the place, dropped off my portfolio, came down to Greenwich Village. I had located it because I'd seen a cartoon with a hippie standing on the corner of 6th Avenue and 8th Street. So I knew roughly where Greenwich Village was. And I got something to eat, went back to the studio, went back to LeBallin's office and uh, he had a job for me, except I had to do it in two days. And you had no place to live? Well, I asked him, why. I didn't have any, I didn't have any art supplies either. So I asked him where I could find an art store. And he said, what neighborhood do you live in? And I said, I got a locker at Grand Central Station. And he said, how, how long have you been in New York? And I said, what time is it? <laughs> I had been in New York for four hours at that point. So I found a hotel in Times Square. And I went to the Walgreens that was on the corner of 7th Avenue and 42nd Street, that famous old Walgreens that you used to see in the movies. And I bought a spiral notebook to use for paper. And I got a couple pencils and a pencil, a plastic sharpener. And I did sketches. I, I turned in sketches the next day. 
and finished art two days later. So I had my first job. I, mean, I have to say, though, that wasn't for fact. Fact had gone out of business because Ginsburg got sued again. By, um... by Barry Goldwater. He had hired a bunch of scientists to analyze Barry Goldwater, so-called, since none of them had ever met Goldwater or treated him or analyzed him. They were just giving their political opinions, and Goldwater sued him. That's the reason that there is the so-called Goldwater rule, I guess. And he won. Psychiatrists aren't supposedly allowed to give their opinions about somebody's mental health unless they've actually talked to the person and analyzed them. But anyway, what the Lebalin told me was he, he said he wanted to publish a portfolio of my drawings because I had this whole portfolio of unpublished drawings that I had done while I was at Hallmark. And he said, but you better talk to Ginsburg about that. And you better talk to him fast because he's leaving for prison next week. So I got an appointment to see Ginsburg and he was indeed going to Allenwood and he was looking for someone to edit his new magazine, Avant Garde, which is the publication that I did my first job for. Since I wasn't ready to edit Avant Garde, I, he, he wasn't particularly interested in me. And I said goodbye to him and I never saw him again, actually. We'll be right back. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. Number one, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or number two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. So when you finally got a place to live, it was on the Lower East Side. The first place was the Collingwood Hotel. I worked for two weeks in Times Square. And then I moved to the Collingwood Hotel on 35th Street, which is little Korea now. But it was a hotel. They said you could, this was great. You could rent it by the day or the hour and you didn't have to have any luggage. I had a room that had been used by a prostitute before me. And I used to, for the first month that I lived there, which I got for a discount because the lock on the door didn't work. So every night I would push the bed up against the door in case anybody tried to break in. I figured that would alert me. But I would feel all these calls for the prostitute who had had the room before me. However, it did give me a telephone. There was a phone strike on in New York. And if I had gotten an apartment, I couldn't have gotten a phone. So for six, seven months, I worked out of that hotel room. But I went down to 23rd Street and I got a great big drawing table. It was five feet by about four feet. And I carried it on my back, back to the hotel. I didn't have money for a cab. So I carried it in two pieces. I carried the drawing table on my back from 23rd Street to 35th. <laughs> Went walking into the hotel lobby like <laughs> some sort of laborer with this big giant, it looked like a door, I think, to most people on my back. Got into the elevator, carried it up to the 30, up to the, uh, I think the ninth floor, I think is where I was living. And then I went back and got the stand and carried it back separately. So I had a drawing table and got some lights and I was in business. And you were taking your work around the city. Yeah, I was taking a portfolio out every day. I was meeting an old girlfriend, or at least a woman I had dated in Kansas City. She came here to visit me for a week. She stayed at the, uh, gosh, what was that? An, an old hotel on 32nd Street. The Martinique? It was an old abandoned hotel that I think had been a big headquarters for the Communist Party once. And she was a very elegant college graduate, so I think... I'd set her up in the wrong hotel, as it turned out. But anyway, it was close to the Collingwood, and we'd spent the week together just traipsing around. This was the height of the 60s. It was the summer of love. 
The Beatles had just released the Sgt. Pepper album. Everything was kind of a hippie culture suddenly. You know, the word hippie had emerged just that year. The big song that year was A Whiter Shade of Pale. Still probably the best song out of the 1960s, as far as I'm concerned. So it was a great week, and we decided to meet again at Christmas time in Chicago, where I, I had some friends from when I worked there. So I decided I'd show my portfolio at Playboy while I was in Chicago. And that was how I got what turned out to be a 30-year run with that magazine. So you met Art Paul at that point? I went to Chicago, and I visited my old employer who I worked for for 18 months back when I was a teenager. And somebody there said, Playboy's looking for work like this. And so I took my portfolio up and dropped it off. And the next day I came back and, and this beautiful receptionist said, Mr. Paul would like to see you. So Art invited me in and uh, asked me if I'd like to do work every month. He said it was the most original portfolio he had seen in years and wanted to use me in every issue. So suddenly, you know, just months after going freelance, I was as secure as I needed to be for that stage of my life. So then you moved down to the Lower East Side. Heaven Street and Avenue C. It was an apartment that basically had hot and cold running people <laughs> through at all times. In terms of magazines, where did you want to be? What did you want to do for them? That would take long to describe, and no one would believe it if I did. What I was looking to do was not magazines. I wanted to do books of my work. I really wanted to do books the way people do record albums. I wanted to just do a series of drawings and take them around to a publisher who would publish them as a book. Well, that turned out to be a pipe dream, and I needed magazines to do work. So my concept then became, I found out, in fact, I found it out with my first job at Playboy. Art Paul had his assistant, George Kenton, call me with an assignment. It was a P.G. Woodhouse article. And I was so excited to get the work. It was going to be a double-page spread. I was still living in the hotel at those days. This was just about a month after I had shown Art my portfolio, right after Christmas. And George said, we'll send you your idea. And I thought, what do you mean you'll send me my idea? I thought artists did their own ideas. And he explained, no, that's not the way it works. At Playboy, we come up with all the ideas, and then we send them out to illustrators. We pick the illustrator whose work matches the kind of idea that we have. So I turned the job down. I said, if you ever can't think of an idea, give me a call, and I'll do my own ideas. And then I started kicking myself because I was hoping that maybe if I said I turned it down, they would let me do what I wanted to do. And I was badly mistaken. So for the next couple of days, it was January of 68, I started just walking around New York, kind of kicking myself for having overplayed my hand. And damn, if two days later, Art Paul called me and he said, Brad, I'm so disappointed. I hear you turned down our job. So I thought, well, here's my chance. Now I can just say, well, yeah, send me my idea and I'll do whatever you want. And instead I did it all over again. I said, I only want to do my own ideas. You know, I said, well, what's the point of doing ideas if you don't do your own? And Art said, well, he explained why. He said, you know, we can't get illustrators to do the kind of work that most illustrators want to do very literal work. And we can't find people to do the kind of ideas that, that I want to see in the magazine. And he said, do you think you can come up with a better idea than my staff? And I thought, for, I just flashed flash him a second. I didn't know what the hell to say. Finally, I just said, well, I don't know if I can do anything better, but I know I could do something more personal. And there was silence on the other end of the phone for just a fraction of a second. And Art said, that's a great answer, Brad. Go ahead and do something more personal. And so I did. And I got the first, I got my first job at, at Playboy 
it was scheduled for the June issue. And in May, I moved to the Lower East Side, counting on Playboy now for regular work every month. And nothing happened. The magazine came out and there, the article wasn't in it. My picture wasn't in it. July came, same problem. This was for the Ribald Classics. No, this was for the article by E.G. Uh, Woodhouse. It was an article about how he couldn't get good servants any longer. He's worrying about getting good servants. And I'm living in a room at a hotel that a prostitute found to be out of her league. So yeah, I wondered what happened to the job in Playboy. I thought, well, surely they didn't like it or something. They're not going to run the thing. And I still couldn't get a phone because the phone strike was on. So I went to a pay phone. I had to use pay phones up in Times Square. I'd walk up to Times Square every day from 11th Street and Avenue C. They had a bank of pay phones up there with big phone books that you could use. And I just went up there and I'd call every day. I'd, I'd call and make an appointment to show a portfolio. And then anytime anybody seemed interested in work, I'd have to kind of call them to say any jobs for me today. It was very embarrassing. But the phone strike didn't end until August. So I was for three months, I was without a phone. And at one point I was so broke that I scrounged up five cents to go buy a candy bar, except the price of candy bars had gone up to, I think, seven cents or something. And I was walking around the street. I found a $20 bill on the street. And boy, did I live off that $20 bill for the next two weeks. I bought eggs and yogurt. And then all of a sudden, I called Playboy one day and they said, no, no, no. Art loves the peas. But instead of running it in June, the way we schedule it, we want to make a big issue out of it. We want to run that along with a picture of you in the December issue and then start the rubbled classics right after that. So I toughed it through the summer. I did a job for Red Book. Was that done for Bob Ciano? Bob Ciano gave me a job at Red Book. I got enough money to buy a bed. And on the way home to the hotel, I got followed by this. Most people think muggings occur in the middle of the night or something, but they don't. They follow people home from work and they get them in the vestibule of their building between one door and the interior door. So I, I went in and, you know, stupidly, I collected my mail and these two guys come in with knives and they had me cornered in the vestibule and just automatically I tried to fight with them and I got my arm cut. So I learned to look both ways before I entered the building after that and never to enter a building if anyone was 50 feet either side of the door. I never collected mail on the way in any longer. I just ran in and went to my apartment. But at any rate, I did manage to buy a bed. It was a used bed. I had a pair of box springs and a mattress. But I, now I had a drawing table, lights, had an air conditioner, and a bed. So what more did I need? You needed more clients, I suppose. I had a few clients. I was picking up work. I had already done work for Gent, which was kind of an imitation of Playboy. There was Gent and what was the other one? There was Dude, Gent. Dude and Gent, right. I almost remember the art director's name, but I did a very nice picture for them. I $150. And I was doing work for Evergreen Review. I had started doing work for Ken Deerdorf. Ken was great. He had already given me several assignments. And they usually paid about $150 too. And I was doing some book jackets for Random House. They paid $150. I was doing work for Bob Scudellari. I went in and took in my portfolio, but I didn't have any type on my work. In those days, we designed our own jacket. We had to order the type. We got $150. We had to do three color separations which meant doing three black plates and designating the colors to be used on each. And we had to do our own type and we paid for the type out of our own pockets. And since I had gotten my type connections from LeBolland, I was using the composing room, which was the best type house in town, but probably the most expensive as well. And they had, but I had a really nice catalog as a result of it. 
So Scudellari had said, well, how do we know you can use type? And the answer was, well, probably I can't. But Jim Parkinson in Kansas City had kind of schooled me to the fact that there were different typefaces. He showed me this one has feet, this one doesn't. And he told me not to mix sans serif with this or not to mix Caslon with Bedoni or something. So I had a kind of a rough idea about type. I figured I'd just teach myself the rest. So how did your strategy work? You would always say that you wanted to do your ideas, not other people's ideas. Yeah. There was a certain Ayn Rand quality to that. Directly from Ayn Rand, I had seen the Fountainhead while I was in high school. And Gary Cooper in that movie said that he would work for anybody as long as they let him do what he wanted. He designed garages for people and gas stations. I saw that movie when I was in high school and I thought, you know, that sounds right. That sounds about right to me. It's right up my alley. And that's what I thought when I met you and you announced that that was your strategy and preference. And we met at a friend's house on East 10th Street, and his mother was an Ayn Randist. Oh, was she? I didn't know that. She used to go to the Nathaniel Brandon Institute every week and would take me with her. Oh, did you go to some of those? I did go to some of those. So aside from the movie and aside from the book, I got a mouthful of what you were doing Ayn Rand was still around in those days. She had a half-hour program on WBAI in the mornings. So you were an iconoclast, among other things. I was just a Boy Scout from Ohio. You were a Boy Scout from Ohio, but you'd go in with demands to the art directors and editors, and you would tell me often about encounters you would have with the editors. (laughs) They thought I was being arrogant. I was just trying to be... uh... Listen, here's the deal. I was offered a scholarship to Ohio State in high school as a writer. And my high school English teacher who had recommended me for the thing was very disappointed that I didn't go into writing. So I figured when I was in Chicago, see, I thought when I went to Chicago that artists were really artists and they did what they wanted to do. I didn't realize the whole business of art broke down into fine art and commercial art. And if you did fine art, you couldn't do anything realistic any longer because that was the Those were the days of abstract expressionism. Picasso had said that after me, there can be no more realism because you can make wine from grapes, but never the reverse. And then along came Odd Reinhardt, who was painting these black on black paintings and saying he was the ultimate artist. He had taken art as far as it could go and he couldn't go any further. He had solved the problem. All the problem that had bedeviled artists for centuries was all done. And the only thing now was to politicize art and start making art responsive to political needs. He he didn't go that far. That was what followed him. My idea when I came to New York was if I couldn't do what I wanted to do as an artist, I'd go into writing and do it there. And I just decided to make a kind of a make or break logic. So I wasn't trying to be an egotist. I just figured if I couldn't do the kind of work I wanted to do, I'd rather do something else. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of my culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. So when you went to the New York Times... I didn't know I was taken. There were three art directors who were responsible for what I wanted to do, being making me successful. Well, four. I've, I've heard Laballon was the first, but he was, I never worked with him again. 
Art Hall was the most important because he gave me this high profile in the highest paying magazine in the world. I was getting $1,000 a month from Playboy, and that was 1968 money. I looked it up a year ago when I wrote an article about it. It would be $5,000 in today's money. So I was already getting five, the equivalent in today's money of 5000 a month for doing one picture. And it was in a, you know, Playboy had a huge circulation in those days. Had over, I think, uh, 6500 so I had a huge circulation in a popular magazine, being well paid for it, and I never had to show them a sketch for any of those ribald classics, ever. They sent me a job, usually about three days before it was due. I'd do it in three days and send it back. And that was the way we worked for 20 years. It was a great relationship. At one point, art began to disprove of the, you know, I began to start doing work that was a little too cartoony for art's taste. And he said so. And he rejected two pictures that I did. He was talking about getting rid of me at that point, if I wanted to keep doing pictures in that manner. And I said, well, no, I don't want to do them in that manner that bad. So I went back to doing pictures the way I had been doing them. And he was right. I look at those, those couple of exceptions now, and I was trying too hard to fit into the hippie culture that I had become part of when I met you, because you were art directing well, when we met, you were already art directed in the New York Free Press. Yeah, Free Press. And I had seen the ad. I was looking to get involved in the hippie papers. And I saw the, I had the village voice and I saw that ad that you had run. So I called you up and you told me to meet you at this apartment. So I got there and here were a bunch of kids who had just graduated from college or from high school acting really cool and kind of eyeing me like when I used to catch the bus east from Arkansas, I would get on a bus that had come out of Los Angeles and switched the, uh, Ozark stages would connect in St. Louis. But by the time I got on the bus that was headed east from California, everybody on the bus had been on board for like a day and a half. They all knew each other. And I'd get on in that St. Louis. And everybody looked at me like I was a new kitten in the litter. And that was kind of the way you and your pals looked at me that day when I showed up with this big portfolio on all these pictures. Well, I think it was the largest portfolio anybody ever saw. But the pictures were big. I needed a big portfolio. So at any rate, yeah, we did that job. We did Borrowed Time, your publication that you did with your bar mitzvah money. And in the middle of it, your art director friend quit. And you and I ended up on the floor of my apartment pasting up ads. And I tried to find a bunch of illustrators to do work for it. And I said, you know, I was going to just kind of bring some people into it. I got some friends. And I said, we're doing this magazine. And I just want you to do whatever you want to do. By this time, I already had the idea that we would get pictures that were separate from the articles. I mean, this was the reason I wanted to get into the hippie press. Every magazine that I was showing my work to wanted to art direct me. And I figured, well, maybe the hippie press will be different because, you know, everybody's making it up as they go along there. And if I get in there, maybe I'll meet some young people who will become art directors. And then we can work this thing out from you guys were more my age than the art directors I was working for. Most of the art directors I was working for were in their 30s or 40s, and you were just a few years younger than I was. So I figured I would be more with people my own age if I got into the hippie press, because I was still 23 when we met. But you were working for glossy magazines. Yeah, I, I worked for Red Book by then, and Red Book was a big magazine. And the, Red Book was one of the highest paying publications. Red Book and McCall's were run out of the same office. And McCall's was that place where Bernie Fuchs was making a huge splash in those days, doing all those Kennedy articles and so on. McCall's was one of the highest paying magazines in the world as well. And Red Book was kind of the little sister publication, but they were high quality. So was illustration for you 
a quintessential art? I treated it no different than I would have treated fine art if I'd gone into fine art. I had no art education when I went to Chicago. I wanted to work for Walt Disney. You know that. I've, met, I've written about it. I applied for a job at Disney's when I was 16, got rejected when I was 17, and then I figured I'd have to go to plan B. Unfortunately, I didn't have a plan B, so that's when I got on the bus and went to Chicago and figured I'd just make it up as I went along. I did apply for a job at Disney one more time while I was in Chicago and got rejected a second time. So then I figured I would just become a fine artist. And that was when I found out that fine art was supposedly a very different thing. If you were an illustrator, you weren't doing anything important. If you were a fine artist, anything you did was important. This was the era of the topless cello player. Remember Charlotte Mormon? Charlotte Mormon. Began by, I think she began by playing the cello topless. And by the time she was finished, she was playing the cello naked. But this was the era of topless cello players and self-mutilators. And I figured, if this is what art is all about, I don't want anything to do with it. So I will do this. By the end. And in the meantime, I had gone beyond Norman Rockwell, which is what I thought of illustration. And I, yeah, I had the great, in Chicago, I had the great Chicago Art Institute there. It was free admission during the day. And I worked downtown, so it was only about six blocks from there. I'd walk over during lunch hour. Lunch hour could last all day because we didn't have much work at the studio. We'd usually have to do paste-up jobs at night. But during the day, I'd wander through the Chicago Art Institute. I saw Rembrandt's etchings, which I thought were ink drawings. I didn't know what etchings were. I saw Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, which I didn't like. I thought it looked unfinished. I didn't realize he would later be one of the biggest influences on my painting style, but it began there. I saw Winslow Homer, whose paintings I had seen in an encyclopedia. At that age, I couldn't have told you Michelangelo from Leonardo. I was that ignorant of the fine art world. I seem to remember you were interested in the Brandywine school as well. Yeah, I was very big on the Wyatts, although I liked NC more than Andrew, and he was a big influence. Take us to the times, because that is where... Well, it began with you, because you were doing the New York Free Press when it morphed into Screw, and you were Screw's first art director. So how did you feel when you learned that the Free Press was folding, or it was in decline at any rate, and Goldstein and what's his name, Jim uh, Buckley. Buckley, were starting this sex paper, which I have to say was this was predicated on the fact that there had been a Supreme Court ruling about a movie, a Swedish movie, called I Am Curious Yellow, that showed intercourse on the screen for the first time, and the Supreme Court ruled that it wasn't pornographic. So what happened at the New York Free Press that got you into becoming a pornographer? Being 17 and not knowing any better. I wanted to do cartoons, and you wanted to publish in the Free Press, and I told you that only I could run. Yeah, you were the only artist to be in the Free Press. But then we started the New York Review of Sex, and you started doing drawings that looked very much like the Ribol classics, except with a little more genitalia. Yeah, with quite a few more. In fact, some fairly large. You had asked me what I wanted to do with the new magazine. Steve's being modest. Steve had art-directed Screw until the Free Press folded. And what the Free Press had become, which was basically a neighborhood leftist newspaper, kind of morphed into the New York Review of Sex, which to give it its true name was the New York Review of Sex and Politics, because it was basically the New York Free Press with what they used to call tits and ass. So it was masquerading as a sex paper in which it ran articles about brothels in Saigon. That was a way of getting into the Vietnam War articles. 
And then there were coverages of gay bars. This was before the Stonewall. In fact, Dan Maurer and I went down to the Stonewall one night before the riots to get in. And we were supposedly doing an article about, I was going to do some drawings and Dan was going to write the article. Dan had just come back from Vietnam. And the two of us were going to, we went to the Stonewall one night to check in and spent a little time in there. I don't know whatever became of the article. I never did any drawings. But yeah, I did drawings for the New York Review of Sex and Politics. When you asked me what I wanted to do, I said, well, just give me a quarter of the editorial page. And you said, well, what would you do with it? And I said, well, I'd do whatever. And you said, fine. So that was the way we started that one. So you were next to Art Paul. You were the second in the league of art directors who just let me do what exactly I wanted to do. And I did it for, I think, what were you paying, 15 bucks? If you were lucky, we paid you. Yeah. Well, I did four drawings for Screw under four different names that made it look like you had four different artists. I did an Edward Gorey style drawing. I think I did a Jack Davis style drawing. I did one of my own, and I may have done a Leonard Baskin drawing. I can't remember. Well, you did a number of Leonard Baskin drawings. Yeah, I did a lot of Baskin drawings. So how did the leap to the times happen? Well, after you left Screw to work on the review of sex and politics, which later added the title Aerospace, since the uh, editor had been a paratrooper. It was the New York Review of Sex and Politics in Aerospace, which, do you remember the slogan for the uh, newspaper? Because it said it all. A symptom of our times. Symptom of our times, right. And it was the New York Review of Sex and Politics, a symptom of our, of our times, which was a way of saying, sorry for, all, sorry for all the naked pictures, but we have to do it in order to get readers. That was essentially the that was essentially the way the paper functioned. Otherwise, it was very political. So anyway, uh, Suarez came. J.C. Suarez, who had been your boss when you signed on after high school to edit. Steve should be telling this himself, because he's going to be too modest to tell it. Steve graduated from high school when he was seventeen and got a job working for the Free Press as a summer job. And J.C. Suarez was art directing the thing. And J.C. had just come out of the army himself and was doing drawings very much like David Levine and art directing the free press. Steve got this job and Suarez got a better job and left overnight. So Steve was left learning to art direct the New York free press kind of on his own and just making it up as he went along. So when Steve started art directing, Steve, when you started art directing the New York Review of Sex and Politics, Suarez came back to edit there to mean to art direct screw, but he's also got a job moonlighting or maybe sunlighting might be a better word for the New York Times, working kind of day jobs at the Times. And y'all had moved into 85th Avenue and screw moved just down the hall from us. So Steve and his crew had an office on one end of the hall in New York Review of Sex and Politics, and Screw was down on the other end, producing Screw, and the two rival sex papers were running out of the same floor, and people were running back and forth between the floors, and Suarez came in one day, mostly, I think, to just kind of razz Steve and give him a hard time, and I happened to be sitting there, and Steve introduced us, and he said, oh, I've been, you know, I've been following that work you're doing in Playboy. One day he came in, and he said, hey, how would you like to do for the New York Times what you're doing for Playboy? And I said, yeah, sure, thinking he was just making it up. But damned if he didn't, you know, the next day we were headed up to the New York Times. Suarez, this is great, Suarez was the only art director in the hippie press who drove a Bentley to work. He had two of them. He was very much offended if you referred to one of them as a Rolls Royce. Bentleys, in his mind, were superior to Rolls, and he definitely had a Rolls. 
He was not making the money from Screw. I have to mention that he was the descendant of a banking family, the Suarez family in Alexandria, Egypt. And they had left the country during the Nasser revolution back in the 50s. He had gone to Yale and I think dropped out and then went to Pratt because he wanted to be an artist. So anyway, he took me up to the New York Times and introduced me to Harrison Salisbury. And they were just starting the op-ed page. And Harrison asked me how I saw my work being used how I saw illustration being used on the op-ed page, because they had never run art on the editorial page before. It has to be said that the op-ed page existed because Lou Silverstein started the page and used people like Ralph Steadman, along with other European artists. Did he use them before Suarez? He used them before Suarez. Suarez was a good choice because he was already fluent in that language of European illustration. I came in with Suarez, so I I attribute everything to him. So when you came into the op-ed page, there was this overlay of surrealist work, all linear, all seeming... His studio, in fact, Suarez's was called Data Studios. Yeah, that's right. Right. So he had that sensibility. Oh, yeah, Suarez had a definite background in all that. So that's when your work began to change. You were doing that kind of comic strip, R. Crumb-related stuff, and then it kind of morphed into what I consider the first link, the junkie drawing, the junkie drawing with the mouths and the arm. Yeah, that was one of the first drawings I did. Harrison asked me how I saw my work being used. He called it illustration. And I said, well, I don't really think of it as as illustration. I didn't know what to say. And I kind of stammered around for a second. And then I thought I had a great dangle, I thought. I said, just imagine that you've locked the writer in one room and the artist in another, and you give them both the same assignment. And then you put the stuff together. The writer gives you an article and the artist gives you a picture and you just put them together. As long as they run tangent to each other, that qualifies as a direction. I'd never used that line before. I, I began using it after that. The example I always used to use when I was arguing with art directors about it was, I said, take the most famous illustration in Western art, which would be the picture of God creating Adam on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And I said, why does it not illustrate the story? The story has God breathing life into Adam. It doesn't have them touching fingers. Why did Michelangelo paint God breathing life into Adam? Because on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, it would look like a kiss. And it wouldn't have given the impression that Michelangelo was trying to convey. But everybody who's ever petted a cat in the middle of winter knows that sparks jump, or when you shake hands with somebody, static electricity jumps. Or when noses come too close in dry weather, just before a kiss, a spark will jump. And Michelangelo must have recognized that and turned the breath of life into the touch of the hands. And I said, I don't know a single person, art critic, preacher, anybody who has ever criticized that painting because it doesn't illustrate the biblical language. Everybody takes it for granted because the Hebrews, when they wrote the Bible, were using a verbal metaphor. God breathes life into a person. And so when that comes from the belief that when you die, you breathe your last breath. So if the breath that leaves your body signifies you dying, it must have been the breath of life coming in from God. It was a perfect metaphor but it was a verbal metaphor. And what I was looking for was visual metaphors that didn't simply imitate the verbal. And so, for example, once I had a job to illustrate a glass ceiling, and I did a picture of a guy who was climbing flight of steps, 
only when he got to one step, the next step was too big a step that he couldn't have made it. It was a glass ceiling, except there was no glass ceiling. So I took it into the uh, editor. And he said, the article's about glass ceilings. Where is the glass ceiling? I said, it's glass. You can't see it. And then I tried my uh, Michelangelo story on him. So usually by that way, I began to explain, at least to some editors, that what I was looking for was a visual counterpart to whatever verbal information they had in the text. And it began with trying to explain it to Harrison that day, because over the first year or so, I was having a hard time explaining what it was that I was trying to do besides being a jerk, which is what some thought I was just being. So the op-ed page allowed you to follow that strategic idea, that philosophical idea that you had. I did pictures. Well, for one thing, Watergate came along. And with Watergate, I didn't have to follow the story. In fact, the story evolved so fast that usually by the time the story was written, there was too little time to do a picture just to go with it if you wanted to get it out overnight. So I began just doing pictures following the news. One week I did four different pictures about Watergate. One of them was Nixon on top of all his subordinates. Each subordinate was smaller than the one above him. Nixon was at the top. Haldeman right under him, Ehrlichman right under him, John Dean right under him, and I didn't know the rest, so I made them all generic. But each one got to be so small that they were eventually just a chain of people collapsing. It was used on the cover of the first catalog of op-ed work. It was one of three drawings I did that week, and I just took them all up to the Times and dropped them off. And they just applied them to articles as the articles came in. So I didn't read a single article for any of those pictures. When I first went to the Times as art director of the op-ed page, you gave me three books. One was Ketty Kolwitz, the other was Heinrich Clay, and I think George Gross was the third. I don't think so. I, don't, I didn't like George Gross. It would likely have been Baskin, but I couldn't promise that. I know I tried to get you to write to Baskin too. Well, I did. I got him to do stuff for Yeah, he did a draw. He did, he did Nixon and who else was he? He did Ford. Ford. Yeah, it was Nixon and Ford. And he did them on the back of other drawings. And they were about a year after you wrote him the letter. You wrote him a letter. It took a year for him. And he sent a letter back along with a picture of Nixon and a picture of Ford drawn on the back of some other drawings that he, I guess, discarded. But yeah, I was trying to get you to use all kinds of people like that. When did magazines start to change in terms of your own work? Well, what made a big difference was when we hit that show in Paris and the Art of the Times book came out because my work was on the cover of that. The Art of the Times came out around the same time as the Art of Playboy because Playboy had a traveling exhibition called Beyond Illustration that Art Paul was doing. That was at the Huntington Hartford Museum. Well, that's where it came, but it had traveled around Europe first. It was previewed over there. And one of the pictures that I had done for Playboy was used as a poster for that. And then came the Art of the Times book, which came out, and my drawing was on the cover of that. So from that point on, people kind of came to me for the kind of work I wanted to do. You see, one of the things that I did early on, when I worked in Chicago, I was looking at the portfolios of kids who came to our studio looking for work. And they'd show us these portfolios and they had time covers and record album covers. And the guy I was working for, John Diosegi, made a point of saying, don't show this kind of stuff because everybody knows you didn't do time covers. Your work doesn't look like it's ready for time. You should be doing small jobs. Do a catalog for a small company that nobody's ever heard of and show that in your portfolio. 
And I took that idea to heart myself. And when I did my portfolio, I did all black and white work, except for a few color things that I had done at Hallmark. I showed almost all black and white. And the idea was that most people relegated black and white to spot illustrations. And I learned at Hallmark that editors don't pay a lot of attention to work that they don't think is important. And so I figured I could break in by doing work that most artists didn't want to do. And I would take the smaller jobs and usually get to do them the way I wanted. I think it worked out. That was part of the way I was part of my strategy was to take the smaller jobs and do them the way I wanted. So after a while, I had a portfolio of things that looked like I wanted to do them. And pretty soon I began getting calls to do that kind of work. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. And pretty soon after that, lots of other people started doing your work as well. I couldn't do anything about that, could I? No, but it did mark a shift in the overall style and concept. Well, it worked against me at, at Time Magazine, for example. One guy came along who was very good and began, he came here doing somebody else's work and then started doing mine and going around to all my clients. And he had heard stories about how artists, you know, some art directors had a hard time working with me. And he kind of promised that he was, he'd be easy to work with. So I remember I kind of got booted out of time after doing a whole bunch of covers for them. Was the Ayatollah the first cover you did? The Ayatollah was, yeah, the first cover that I did for them. That was an odd case too, because they asked me to do a picture of the Ayatollah. And I didn't like working from photographs, but they gave me a whole bunch of press photographs. And I found one of them that was a three-quarter view. It had the features of his face, but it was shot with a flash. So it had that back shadow that flashes always have. So I modeled my own face because I looked enough like the Ayatollah, I thought. I modeled my own face in three-quarter view. I had my wife at the time to take a photograph of me. So I used the lighting from my face and the structure from the Ayatollah's face. But they had asked me to leave a lot of space above the turban, just leave a lot of space for all the type that they wanted to add. So I did this painting. It was about maybe 18 by 24. And I took it up. And they loved it, and they photographed it, and they did a cover based on the dummy. And I said, I wanted to make a few changes on it, and I took it back to work on it. And I just, I didn't like it. There was something, you just looked wrong to me. They gave you a cover in those days. It was a celluloid cover with a Time logo on it. The Time logo is fantastic. It makes anything look good when you put it on it with that red border, the red and white border, and the Time logo. Unlike the Newsweek logo, which would make even a good picture look bad. Newsweek had that clumsy drop shadow, lowercase type that ran about one third down the way of the, you could hardly do a picture and cram it in under the Newsweek logo. But the Time logo made everything look fantastic. So they gave you this transparent logo. It was life-size. You could drop it on anything. And I just happened to drop the thing on my Ayatollah picture. And I thought, my God, if it weren't for all this space around it, this would be a fantastic cover. So I began, I take some white sheets of paper and I began blocking out everything on my painting until I had the thing right down to the size of the celluloid sheet with the logo on it. And I thought, that looks fantastic. So I, I'm going I'm to try to persuade them to do it. And I thought, no, they've already shot the thing and they've already done a dummy with the whole thing. It's already probably been okayed by the editors. 
Once it's been okay, no one's ever going to raise the issue ever again. The only way to do this is to cut the damn picture out of the canvas. So I took a mat knife and I cut the thing out of the canvas until it was literally eight inches by 10, gone as the 18 by 24 canvas. I sent up a little painting, eight inches by 10, and they freaked out. What are they going to do? Well, they had already covered themselves. They, yeah, it was a man of the year cover. They had already covered themselves. They had four other artists doing covers. One person was doing a very radical cover. One was doing a Persian miniature. There was, I think, somebody else doing one. And then there was mine. So I figured, well, they're covered. If I've ruined this one, I've just ruined it for me. They'll get one of the other guys to do the cover anyway. So I sent it up and it worked out perfectly. It was exactly the way the cover should have run. All that extra space was ruining the dynamic of the cover. So after that, they asked me to do all kinds of other covers. I must have done 10 after that. I don't think any of them ever ran. They kept them in the morgue in case there were all these Russian premiers, all of whom were elderly. I think Brezhnev was on his last legs, and they knew that Andropov and Chernenkov were after him, and they were equally old. At any moment, the premiership could change. So I ended up doing all the contenders for the Russian premiership, and some of them were very nice. And then I did Brzezinski for a time. I think that was one of the best covers I ever did. It never ran. I've got it on my website. Yeah, I think it was one of the best portraits I ever did, but it didn't run. What did you want to accomplish by sticking with illustration? Was there something you needed to say that could only be said through mass media? Well, Reagan changed tax policy and created a bunch of tax shelters that fine artists' agents wanted to take advantage of. And I got offered a couple of deals. This was back in the 80s. The deal was that you would do all the work for a fine art lithograph and you would be paid a fairly decent sum of money by some investor. The work would never be published. This was kind of like a scene out of the producers or something. The idea was they were creating something that they would make a down payment on. The down payment would be the payment to the artist, but then they would write the work off as a loss, and they would get a huge tax write-off for it. So the idea was that we were supposed to be doing fine art lithographs, but the deal was they would never be used. We would just be paying for doing the work. And I thought, well, hell, I could get a job as a caterer. You know, I might as well, if I'm going to get a tax shelter job, I might as well do something like that. So I turned those jobs down. But I was married at that point, and I wanted to buy a big house for my wife. So I started doing a lot of advertising. And I already had the reputation for doing my own ideas. So I got pretty much the kind of license that I wanted doing advertising as well. Part of my strategy early on was simply to give an art director a lot of choices. Because I knew the old cliche, you give an art director three choices and they'll pick the worst one. But I just decided, you know, I was fairly clever. So I would come up with a lot of ideas on the theory that I liked all of them. And I'd send them several ideas so that if they picked one, it was at least one that I wanted to do. It might not be the one that I most wanted to do, but it would be one that I wanted to do. So I was happy with that. I'd save all the ideas and use them elsewhere for other things. Nothing else I'd do it for myself. So I've pretty much done what I wanted with my career so far. New things happen every day. I'm still, at the moment, I've got about 15 ink drawings that I'm working on that I really like, and I'll find a place for most of them, I think, somewhere down the line. There was a point where you moved from doing 
representational work that was somewhat expressionistic, impressionistic, to stick figures. Oh, come on. I wasn't doing stick figures. You were doing primitive. Yeah, I was doing... What happened was I developed a bunch of ideas as sketches that I would turn into paintings, but the paintings looked overdone when I got done with them. They just looked like, well, this thing should have been left in the sketch stage. A friend, Roland Scatoni, a wonderful art director in, in Zurich, who I had gotten to know, Roland had cooked up a deal with a publisher in a little town called Feldmeilen in Switzerland, just north of Zurich. And at the time, I was thinking about quitting illustration. I had this friend, Gaylord Sartain, who's an actor, and had set out to become an illustrator. Gaylord came to New York and did a few illustrations, and then went back to Tulsa and became a local TV star, and then got into Hee Haw, and got into the movie Nashville, and then went out to Hollywood. And he played lots of parts in lots of movies. He was in Mississippi Burning and Fried Green Tomatoes. He's made quite a good career as an actor. He was filming Hee Haw one year, and I went out just to hang out with him. He wanted to show his work to Playboy. And so he and I were going to go to Playboy together, and I was going to introduce him to everybody and take him around. By this time, he was a big local star in Tulsa and in all the localities, Iowa, Texas, Arkansas. He had a weekly show, Friday, Saturday nights, whatever, called the Uncanny Film Festival. It was one of those things where he showed old monster movies and did a lot of shtick with Gary Busey, who was a guy he had gone to college with. Gary was still using the name Teddy Jack Eddy in those days. And so Gaylord and Teddy Jack Eddy were the stars of this local TV show. And then Gaylord went national when he got into Hee Haw. So I went out to hang out with him at Hee Haw one week. I spent the week in Nashville with all those characters. And then Keith Carradine came by. They were shooting a scene at the Nashville airport for that movie, Nashville. It was the assassination scene. And he said, you guys want to be in the movie? Come on by. Well, I was scheduled to head out to Playboy, and Gaylord was supposed to come with me, but he decided he was going to try to get into the movie. So he hung out, and he and Keenan Wynn improvised a scene at the cafeteria that day, and it made it into the movie. That was Gaylord's entry into the movie business. But in any event, when I had gone out to California with Gaylord that summer, and I was trying to talk to all these screenwriters just about what I, because I was getting imitated. There were so many people imitating me at that point. I thought, well, maybe the thing to do is get out of this business and get into screenwriting anyway. I had wanted to write plays when I was younger. I had lots of ideas for movies. So we went out there and I met quite a few screenwriters, talked with them. And I was just thinking of changing my name to Christian Bradford and starting in as a screenwriter. But I came back and I had this, there was a letter waiting for me from Switzerland, from Roland Scotoni, if you forgot where the story started. And Roland had invited me to Switzerland for a month, all expenses paid, to just do lithographs at this company called Zontopel. They had used to make great big lithographs on these giant stone lithograph plates. So I went over there and I spent a month doing lithographs. And I began keeping a sketchbook. Nick Meglin, who used to be the editor at a Mad Magazine, had done an article about me for American Artist Magazine. And Nick was a great pen and ink artist. So he gave me some sketchbooks that he had bought and was afraid to use because the paper was too big. And while I was over there, I started keeping sketchbooks. And when I came back, I got this offer. I had done all these lithographs, but I had just been thinking about all these sketches that I had been doing. And when some jobs came up, 
I would do sketches and then turn them into paintings. And then I would look at my work and I thought, well, the sketches look better. So Roland called me then and he wanted me to do a Swiss Art Directors Club yearbook. He wanted me to do a painting for the cover. And then all the inside pages would be the sketches that I did. And I said, I got a better idea. Why don't I do the cover and all the inside pages just from scratch? I've got all these ideas that I've done as paintings that I think would look better as sketches. So that was the way that started. I did 40 drawings for him, and we just applied them to this Swiss Art Director's sketchbook. And it got a gold medal from the Art Director's Club in New York. And the Swiss Art Director's Club would have given it a gold medal, except since they were the client, it wasn't eligible. They gave me a silver medal. But that got the attention of some art directors who called. So all of a sudden, I just began to get calls to do more work like that. What's work like now? Magazines have gone digital. Well, we've been hearing about print is dead ever since Carson began doing Ray Gun. This show is print is dead. Is print dead? No. No, but the internet, well, if the internet isn't the end of Western civilization, which I do have a bet on, what has to happen is we need the kind of people art directing the internet that you and Suarez and Art Paul and Dugald Sturmer and Richard Gangle, there were five art directors who really made a big difference back in the 1960s. And you were certainly one of them. We need people with that kind of clout working for internet publications. Internet publications still have to work through the firewall issue. Magazines need to find some way to get subscribers, and then they need to get through the technical problems. I did some work for a corporation, and we went through all the space that if I do the picture this size, it'll run in this format on this device and this format on that device. So there's still some technical problems that have to be solved with with internet graphics, but we need the kind of independence on the internet that we were able to find in magazines. We need to keep the tech companies from doing away with copyright. As you know, I got very involved in all this nonsense 20 years ago, much to my chagrin, because I never wanted to be part of this. I ended up testifying before Congress in both the House and Senate, and we ended up fighting. We stopped the bill from passing but the so-called Orphan Works Bill would have orphaned every work on the internet, not just from artists, but from ordinary people. You know, if you put a picture on a Facebook page, that would have been an orphan unless you had registered it. Picture by picture by picture by picture, you would have had to have filled out a form and registered it with a commercial registry. They were introducing a law that would have allowed a so-called derivative work to be made out of any picture they took off the internet. So you could put a picture on a church social networking site or an internet site of some kind, a Facebook page, and these internet spiders could harvest that work, declare it an orphan, plop an O on it, an oak that looked like a copyright symbol with an O on it, and it would have been fair use for anyone to use. Stock companies could have taken those pictures, made slight changes called derivative works, which would have been legal, then copyrighted that work in their own name and then had machines crawl the internet to sue anybody who used one of their pictures. You could have been technically sued, presumably, for using your own picture if you had used a version of it that they had doctored in the internet. The internet has provided a lot of problems for creative people and non-creative people. I mean, the internet is an open pit of danger. Yes, it is. 
And companies like Google were trying to make it more dangerous. They wanted to open everything. The internet now allows you to take any of my pictures off the internet and use them for private usage. You know, you can't do anything about that, and I wouldn't want to. But this law, actually, the Senate passed a 20-page bill that we got down. It was going to open usage to all, all usage, any commercial usage. We got it rewritten to be non-commercial usage. Then we heard that they had made one change. They'd only made one change to the bill, and they were going to vote on it. Well, they wouldn't tell us what the one change was. So we had to look through the 20-page bill, and sure enough, they had changed the word non-commercial to commercial again. That that one change to the bill would have opened everybody's work up for commercial usage, which meant that anything on the internet could have been used by anybody for commercial purposes. What is the satisfaction or joy that you get from being an illustrator, from being an artist? I'm doing the same thing I did when I was five years old, really. When I was five, I used to listen to the radio. We didn't have a TV in those days. TV didn't come in until I was six. So I was doing comic strips when I was four or five years old. Like I loved Lil Abner. I loved That was my favorite comic strip. I wanted to do things like draw lower Slobovia and create characters like the Schmooze. I was a big Lil Abner fan. And so I was doing comic strips until I decided I wanted to do Walt Disney movies. And then I wanted to go to Disney. Except that when I started thinking about Disney, I didn't know what to do. I knew I wanted to write the stories, I wanted to animate the scenes, and I wanted to paint the backgrounds. Ha, fat chance I would have ever done that at Disney. So once I got to Chicago and saw the Art Institute and began to see real art, my attitude about that changed. And since then, all I wanted to do was do what I did when I was five with the values that I picked up along the way. And I'm still doing it. I'm a mature five-year-old is what I am. I gotten away with it all this time. Imagine that. Still going strong at 79, Brad Holland is a whirlwind of activity. He's currently in the process of producing his as yet untitled next book, a more than 300 page retrospective of his work. For more information, visit his website, bradholland.net. Stephen Heller is the co-chair of the MFA Design Department at the School of Visual Arts in New York. His next book, Growing Up Underground, A Memoir of Counterculture New York, will be published by Princeton Architectural Press in October 2022. Follow his column in print magazine or on Twitter at The Daily Heller. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co. Or if you're an optimist, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening. This episode was made possible by Commercial Type. Commercial Type is proud to announce Feature, a dark and stylish new serif typeface. Diagonal stress, low contrast, and sharply angled head serifs conspire to give the face tension, dynamism, and immediacy. See it at commercialtype.com.